was in 2007, so what is that? 11 years, almost 12 years ago that we did a study in Romans, and this won't be like exactly, exactly the same, but I want to spend a prolonged time in the book of Romans, and I, I hope tonight, just in an introductory kind of a message, to... Uh, to talk about why I think Romans is different and why I think it's important and why I think it merits the kind of study that we're, that we're trying to do. I'm calling it the letter that changed the world, and it's actually not an exaggeration, especially the religious world. Um, arguably no extant doctrine, that, uh, document that we have in print has had the effect on the history of the world and the Christian church like what we call the book, the letter from the Apostle Paul to the churches, Christians in, in Rome. Tonight I'm just going to look at some background material. We'll be in the book of Acts a little bit as we go over it. The author, not much of a surprise, is Paul. The letter, as far as people can compute, was written somewhere around 57 A.D. Probably, not absolutely certain, but probably from Corinth. It was certainly near the end of Paul's third missionary journey. And the reason for the letter is Paul is planning to reach Spain with the gospel and his two former bases of operation, primarily Antioch and Ephesus, they'll be less than useful for him. He needs the cooperation of the capital of the West, Rome, if he's going to get the gospel out to the world, and that's his passion. Romans is different from virtually every other epistle in the New Testament. All the other letters from 1 Corinthians on, all the letters were written as responses to congregations. So one of the apostles would be in a congregation or a cluster of churches in an area like the churches in Galatia, and there would be issues. And they would be writing in response to things they had seen, questions that were raised, false teaching that had come up. Every letter in the New Testament is written to correct false teaching. That should tell us something about the need for sound doctrine in the church. If you took out of your New Testament everything that didn't deal with false teaching, you'd have the Gospels, Acts, and maybe Romans. That's all you'd have in your entire New Testament, if you took out the things that were written to correct false teaching. No apostle had yet been to Rome, so no apostle had planted a church there, which, which is interesting because it makes you think, well, what happened here? How, how is it that Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, being that the letter wasn't a response to a recognized congregation? That's what makes the letter to the Romans kind of unique. It, it's, it functions as a complete 
organized summation of the work of God in the Old and New Covenants. There's really no letter quite like it in your New Testament. So if Paul had never been to Rome and he had no hand in planting a church there, how did the church get there? And we don't know for sure. We have some ideas we can guess. And that's where the book of Acts comes in handy. You might remember these words from the day of Pentecost. When you look at Acts 2, say 8, 9, 10, and 11, Luke writes Acts. I've seen video after video where teachers talk about Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. It isn't true. Paul wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. If you take just word count, Luke writes most of the New Testament. The Gospel of Luke and Acts make up most of the New Testament writings. But Paul did write the most letters in the New Testament. So here's one hypothesis on how this group of Christians came to settle in Rome to whom Paul wrote this letter. Acts 2 verse 8, the people see the Holy Spirit outpoured. They hear them speaking in tongues, languages they had never learned. And they have these questions. How, how is it, Acts 2 8, that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and, and visitors from Rome. So these people were there from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So people from Rome were there, saw this event. We know Peter preached. Many responded to the gospel, some from Rome. And they went back to Rome and they took the gospel with them. It's kind of an amazing account. People seeing the power of the Spirit, experiencing the power of the Spirit, Proclaimed and they fleshed out the greatness of God's work in Christ, and that, that reached Rome. Let's look at some background scriptures. First, I want to look at the strange birth of Paul's desire to reach Rome. You look at Acts 19. We're going to be in Acts 19 for a little bit. Acts 19, verse 18, and we'll go to 20, verse 1. Though here, just I want to do 19 and 20 of Acts chapter 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and, it, and found it came to, get this, 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord began to increase and prevail, not by the words of these Christians, but by the way they so openly renounced a fortune in silver for their faith in Christ. Mental note. Then as now, it's very difficult to demonstrate the preciousness of Christ. You can communicate the gospel of Christ with words, but it's very difficult to show the preciousness of Christ without sacrifice. 
You pick up the text in verse 21, Acts 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, quote, After I've been there, I must, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's what the Christian life was called initially, the way, people of the way. Here was the problem, 24. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, that's the object of their worship, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul, he has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess, Artemis, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Take note again of the spreading of the gospel. First, all these valuable books burned and their value calculated, and people can't figure out what's going on. And now you have the people who manufacture the idols, the silversmiths, and they're, they're ticked off because they're losing tremendous business in Ephesus and all through Asia. This is, this is the manner of the spreading of the gospel. Then and now, it always has countercultural cost to spreading it. It always manifests itself in a turning away from other forms of religious devotion. I know that's politically incorrect. It's how the gospel was born. The gospel never makes friends with false religion. There's always confrontation, cost, separation. The power of the gospel is always revealed in the way people switch allegiances. Let's look at 28 of 19. So the people hear this. All the silver business and the money they're losing and the people are leaving the temple to Artemis. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was the city. Okay, Ephesus is no small place. The city is filled with confusion. Riots, picture it, like you'd see on the news. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. 
And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Not a movie theater, the, the big amphitheater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. There's, it's always like that. Eh? Some people just saw one to get in on the protest. 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet, do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 21, 20 verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said, Farewell and departed for Macedonia. He keeps going. Now, consider whatever calling God has on your life. I, I wonder how many people would, would... This whole city's in an uproar. There's rioting. There's violence. Paul's own little circle are saying, don't go anywhere near here, Paul. They're going to kill you. I wonder how many people would have interpreted all of this opposition to be a sign that maybe, maybe just hold back and quit. You know, maybe... You've heard it. Maybe God's closing this door. It just seems like everything's going wrong. Paul had just finished close to three years of ministry in Ephesus, and this is how it ends up. He's forced to leave because of an uproar caused by the silversmith's anger as the people begin to forsake their idolatry. Paul's desire, 21, keep, keep moving west. And we're encouraged, all of us. You should be. You don't quit because the road gets rough. And it was through all of this. What's, is, is, is God not in control here? A lot of people would say that. Or is, is it through this opposition, through this trial, that God continues pushing Paul to Rome. He can't stay in Ephesus anymore. But it's not because God is defeated. It's because there's the capital of the then world, and Paul wants to reach it. Okay, point number two. Look at Acts 22 and 3. We won't always be in Acts like this. I just want to give some background. How did this come about that... This situation with Rome developed. Acts 22 and 3. 
When he had gone, that's Paul, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him, here we go again, when a plot was made against him by the Jews, just as he was about set to sail, set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So from Ephesus, Paul goes to Greece. He stays there about three months. The city of Corinth, is, it, Corinth isn't specifically mentioned, but there's evidence that that's probably where Paul stayed because Paul tells us that he stayed in the house of Gaius, Romans 16, 23, and we know that Gaius was a convert from Corinth. Let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 1, 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And there's evidence also that Phoebe may have been the deliverer of Paul's letter. She was a member of the church at Corinth. We know that from Romans 16, 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So months are now unfolding and passing. Possibly half a year has elapsed since we first have record of Paul's desire to head for Rome. Six months. Four times he's in riots and having his life threatened in that six-month stretch. Genuine calls from the Lord can stand the test of time. They are germinated in patience. God is rarely rash and rarely rushed. Three. We're two-thirds finished. Look at Romans 15, 20 to 24. We'll get to these verses. I want to talk about this for a minute. Here's what's at Paul's heart to go to Rome. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. It's not pride. It's someone's already got the work going. I'm not needed. But as it is written, those who have never been told of will see him, and those who have never heard will understand. And he quotes the prophet. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, so why hasn't he reached them earlier? Well, there was always stuff that he could do right where he was. There were people that hadn't heard of Christ. There were people that still needed to hear the gospel. But he says, that's, that's running thin now. I've been here a while. I've got lots of workers. So that was one reason why I've been so often hindered. So he, he knows how to look at the events that are happening to him. There's riots. There's opposition. There's imprisonment. There's threats. There's, there's people steering him in directions he doesn't want to go. Is he frustrated? Does he think God doesn't have his hand on his life? No. Paul looks at it and says, well, the reason is there's still people who need the gospel here. That must be why. And then he says... But that's changed. The bases are pretty much covered here. He doesn't mean everybody's a Christian, but there's opportunity for everyone in these major centers. 
But now, since I no longer have, 23, any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for, for a while. What's your life's ambition? You see 1520, thus I make it my ambition. What's your, what's your life ambition? Like if you had to put it in a sentence. Don't put something like, oh, I just want to glorify God, Pastor Don. Well, yeah, I know, we all do. Where are you headed? What are you saving up your money for? Give it to your kids so they can ruin their life with it? Are you getting close to retirement? What are you going to do? Are you young, trying to sort out the direction? What's your life ambition? I say ambition rather than goal. Because a goal can be a mental thing, like a dream. But your ambition is what, what you actively live for, what you're pushing toward, what you give yourself to. And most likely, in any life, it can only have one driving ambition. What's yours? Let me just challenge you. Before you go to bed tonight, you're done watching TV and you've had your snack, get a pad, get a pen, sit down, and in a couple of sentences say, this is what my life is for. This is my ambition. Aim at nothing and you'll hit it every time. You can see how this drives Paul. I mean, he's had nothing but opposition. He's had a dozen reasons in six months not to continue going to Rome. But it's his ambition. He hadn't come to Rome yet because there were still people where he was who hadn't heard the gospel. But now that's changed. That's what verse 23 means. Now, since I no longer have any room to work in these regions, others will carry on the work. The foundation is laid. Let me give you another clue about a good ambition. Or ministry. Ministry in a local church. If you want your life to count... If you really want your life to count. Don't just look at what other people are already doing. Look at what isn't being done yet. That's the path to greatness. That's unprecedented. Listen to me. This isn't in your notes. Everything is unprecedented until somebody does it. Find something great that no one else is doing yet and be gutsy with your ambition for Christ. Let me recommend it to you. Four. We're almost done. Don't panic. Romans 15, 25 to 29. Paul talks about this Rome thing. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. He's going back to Jerusalem. In Rome, going back to Jerusalem. 
bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So before Paul reaches Rome, he wants to deliver the collection from these Macedonian churches. That's where he is. I said Rome. I meant Macedonia, I think. I think that's what I said, eh, in Rome. He's not there yet. This collection for the poor in Jerusalem from the Macedonian churches. It, and Paul said he heard this, the... Uh, the disciples, when Paul came to them in Galatia, he says in Galatians 2, 8, and 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. Okay, so now Paul's remembering the poor. Last point. Romans 15, Acts 20, and then another text from Acts 20. Let me just read and wrap up. Romans 15, 30 and 31 and 32. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, okay, that offering that he talked about, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And then when you look at Acts 20, verse 3, there he, that's Paul, spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews... As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. If all Paul wanted to do was tell the church at Rome that he wanted to come there, why did he write such a long letter? Why did he write such a long theological letter? And part of that, part of that answer lies in these verses, where he, where he says... By God's will, I may come to you with joy. I may. But he wasn't positive. He wasn't positive he was going to make it. And that's why he calls these Christians in Macedonia to, and other places to join him in prayer for his safe arrival. He, he knew four or five times by now, he knew that his life was in great danger. And he still recognized the central importance of Rome in the world if the gospel was to have the kind of base that he wanted it to have. Not sure he's going to get there. Not sure he's going to get there. He wants to get there. It's his ambition to get there. And so he writes this letter to Christians he's never met And it's a theological letter. 
And if he never gets there to share the gospel, he wants to make sure that they've got a full explanation of the gospel. You've read Romans through a lot of times. Would you give it to a new Christian? Romans 7, Romans 8, then you got that 9, 10, 11 stretch, Israel and the covenant and grafted in and not grafted in. And I'm not sure I would. But I'm not sure Paul made a mistake either. I think there's something counterintuitive in the way Paul understands that there's not a conflict, and this is directional for our church, there's not a conflict between deep teaching of theological truth and reaching non-Christians with the gospel. And I find that surprising. Because I think if you look around, you'll notice the same thing. What churches tend to do is they find some way of just dumbing things down to the, the most basic elements so that they will appeal to the unchurched. And, and there's something in Paul that seems to go in a different direction. And I find it shocking a little bit that, that Paul feels like, you know what? You can give people biblical truth and they can learn it. And they can, they can learn God's plan of redemption. And they can see the greatness of salvation. And, and they can learn about the nature of sin and the nature of salvation and the plan of God and the old covenant and the new covenant that you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to hide these things to reach people, but they can go together. I think what happens is it's more work. But I think the, I was going to say the product, you know what I mean, the, the, the process of discipleship the convert, the Christian disciple that you end up with is a totally different thing than just putting the bar just as far down as you can and saying there's not much to hop over here. Just come on in. This is easy. And so let me just put that out there as a challenge to you. That you can reach the lost with a full gospel. You don't have to assume that you, you better drain some of the difficult stuff off so that people will just have a real easy time with it. I'm suspicious. I can't prove this. I'm suspicious that what happens is when people have a really, really, really easy time, they're going to be surprised later on in the Christian life when they find out that there are challenges to it. And they're going to go, wait a minute. You didn't tell me about that. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do for the next little while in the book of Romans. That's just a background. I just wanted to look at where the desire came from, why Paul wanted to get to Rome, the obstacles that he faced on the way, and still didn't interpret those obstacles as being God saying the plan was off. Because whatever you try and do for the Lord, what's your life's ambition? I'll tell you one thing about it right now. If your life's ambition is something God gives you and, and it's doing something that hasn't been done yet, let me just tell you something about it that I'm positive of.
God loves you and has an incredibly difficult plan for your life. But it's where the joy is.